Good morning to you. In the late 1800s, D.L. Moody was the world's most famous evangelist. And people came from all over the world to the Bible conferences he would hold over in Northfield, Massachusetts. And one year, a large group of pastors from Europe attended, and uh, they were given rooms in the dormitory of the Bible school there in Northfield. And as was the custom in Europe, the men put their shoes on the outside of the door of their room, expecting that in the night, servants would come and clean them and shine them up. Now, in America, <laughs> there are no servants forthcoming, right? Uh, and so D.L. Moody was walking down the hallways that evening, and he was praying for the guests at the conference that were in those rooms, and he saw all these shoes out, and he realized quickly the problem. And so he shared the problem with a couple of students, and no one really wanted to resolve the problem. And so Moody just quietly, without another word, this world-famous evangelist picked up all those shoes and took them back to his room. And he shined every pair of shoes without telling anybody. About halfway through all these shoes, there was a knock at his door, and it was a friend. And the friend saw what he was doing and said, let me help you. And, uh, and so that's how we know the story, because Moody never told anybody. It was his friend years later who shared. What I want you to notice is that Moody did not let his notoriety impact his humility. Something needed doing, he just did it. Now, around the same time that God was using D.L. Moody in our country, he was using a man in England named George Mueller. You ever heard of him? Very uh, powerful Christian servant and a neat testimony of the Lord. In the 1800s, there was a tremendous orphan explosion in England. There were just so many orphans. And it started to really burden George Mueller's heart. And so he began to pray about it, and God told him, well, you do something about it. And Mueller had an interesting ministry philosophy. He felt that he should never ask men. He should only ask God. And he would pray to God to meet these needs, and then God would meet those needs. And if you've never read his uh, biography, we have it downstairs in our library. You really should read it. George Mueller is his name. Mueller's life of prayer and obedience is a testimony to God's great faithfulness. Through the course of this one man's lifetime, his ministry ministered to over 10,000 orphans, never asking anyone for a nickel. So impactful was the life of this solitary saint that when Mueller died, the city of Bristol came to a standstill. Historians tell us that the shops and factories shut down for a day, which didn't happen much in the Industrial Revolution, and that the townspeople lined the streets of Bristol to pay tribute to this orphan-loving, gospel-preaching, orphan-loving man. When Mueller was asked the secret of his service, he responded, there was a day when I died, utterly died. I died to George Mueller. I, I died to his opinions, his preferences, his tastes, and his will. I died to the world and its approval or its censure. I died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since then, I've studied to show myself only approved unto God. That's how he understands the difference in his ministry. So today we're in 1 Corinthians 4, and we're tackling part two of our sermon. Christian, have you considered that deflation is the path to elevation? 
Christian, have you considered that deflation is the way to elevation? So I invite you to turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 4. And if you don't have a Bible with you, please use one of ours. If you grab the Blue Pew Bible in front of you and you turn to page 1212, you should find 1 Corinthians 4. Our passage begins at verse 6. And as we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together today. Lord Jesus, we invite you to radically reorient our priorities. Our compass is always set in the mirror back to ourself. Uh, we very easily uh, make ourselves much and miss all the things that you would do in us and through us and with us and even in spite of us. And so we invite you today to wash us in the Word. We invite you today to inform us through the Scriptures that we might be transformed by your Spirit, that we might change our affections and directions from self-seeking to kingdom-seeking, that we would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, and we believe that you're able to add all those other things to us as well. We pray, Lord Jesus, that through this slender chapter and the few verses of emphasis that we'll give in the back portion of this chapter, that our lives would be altered and your glory would be amplified. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. This is the Word of God in 1 Corinthians 4, starting at verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share this rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But you're wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. And, and when reviled, we bless. And when persecuted, we endure. And when slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, last Sunday... Uh, these scriptures urged us to consider four things, and uh, the first that we were urged to consider is this. Consider the example of selfless humility seen in Paul and Apollos. Uh, instead of lording it over others like haughty superiors, Paul and Apollos worked diligently as humble servants for Jesus. Instead of behaving like superstars, uh, so folks would be infatuated with their gifts and talents, they behaved like stewards who were entrusted with a gift that they needed to invest for the master and his kingdom, never for the fame of their name. Secondly, we were urged to consider the scriptures making us wise versus what is otherwise worldly. Consider the scriptures regarding what is wise 
and what is worldly. So, so rather than double down on worldly futility, uh, the scriptures were urging them to cling to the wisdom of God that is godly. And God's wisdom was seen in a number of scriptures that he was quoting from the Old Testament, but here's one. 1 Corinthians 1.31, it is written in the Old Testament, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So to a church obsessed with one's personal status, scripture's directive was to take the focus off of us and put it back onto, onto Jesus. And so thirdly, we were asked to consider three big questions in our passage. And if we look at these three questions, we'll begin to assess our own life correctly. Uh, the Corinthian Christians were throwing around three big names to one another. Uh, that there was Paul, and there was Apollos, and there was Peter, and I follow one, and you follow the other. But, but just as Job was, was uh, getting a little bit too big for his britches in Scripture, and so God asked him a series of questions that quickly put the deflation in that Christian, uh, in that individual believer. Paul asked three questions that uh, can quickly fell a haughty saint. The questions are simple. Who sees anything different in you? That is, if Paul and Apollos are servants and stewards, why do you think you're so special? And then he says, what do you have that you haven't received? If everything we have, our brains, our, our, our training, our, uh, everything came from God. And lastly, if you received it, then why boast? Because the only one you could boast in is the one who gave it to you, and who did that? God. So as it is written, he who boasts ought to boast in the... There's overwhelming logic in the questions. And lastly, uh, last week, point four, the last thing we got to talk about was that we were to consider carefully our eschatology. Uh, the Corinthians had an over-realized eschatology. They put their already ahead of their not yet. Um, he says in verse 8 this enigmatic phrase, already you have all you want, already you've become rich, without us you've become kings. Uh, Paul does not deny that one day saints will reign and rule with Christ, but he says this is not yet our reality as Christians. In fact, uh, God's plan is for there to, be, there to be suffering that precedes serving. Uh, uh, excuse me, suffering and serving precede ruling and reigning. And we see that in Christ, where he suffered and served before he ruled and reigned uh, in the Philippians 2 passage in particular. Uh, so now we come to our final example. So that's review. If you're confused, you can listen to last week's sermon and be confused, but more thoroughly. So that was to be briefly confused. Um, we come to the final example, but it's, but it's ample in example, and so we're going to spend the rest of our time from which we, we sample today, point five. Consider the example of all the apostles, and we're going to subdivide this. He says just some tremendous things that speak really pointedly. Like if you had to write a scripture for the church in North America in 2019, I don't know if you could come up with a sermon that was more relevant than, than this text. Consider the example of the apostles. In, in some of the most biting irony in all of the Bible, Paul's going to show the ridiculousness of the Corinthians' haughtiness. The Corinthians were, were tripping over their, their imagined exaltations, but it's in stark contrast to the degradation of the apostles' actual situation. The, the Corinthians put their preachers on a, on a pedestal, and that's pretty ironic because God had made those men a public spectacle subject to the world's ridicule. Listen again to the Bible. For I think, verse 9, that God has exhibited us, us apostles as last of all, 
like men sentenced to death because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. Now, there's some imagery happening there that would make sense if you lived in the first century that you might miss in our century. Um, Roman generals had this uh, practice that was well understood, and the Corinthians would be seeing this imagery in their head. After a great victory, after the Roman general went off in conquest and took out an enemy somewhere in a far territory, he would come back in a victory parade. And that's the word choice here that is sort of evoked in this imagery. Uh, They would stage this great parade, and all the treasures that had been captured in his latest campaign would be sent ahead of the general. And the greater the victory, the greater the foe, the greater the treasures. And, And there was this lavish, garish display of the general's great prowess in victory. And sometimes this long line of conquered treasures would stretch out for days. It would, the first part of the procession would get to Rome several days before the general in all of his shining armor and chariots gets there. Just, wow, treasures, booty, uh, wonderful uh, things captured and taken from the enemy. And at the very end, before the general would come in, the last bit of the parade would be the conquered soldiers. And they would be paraded through the streets of Rome and people would jeer and mock these once proud and feared enemies. And Rome's bloodthirsty citizens would would adulate and congratulate their general. And then those enemy POWs would be bearing one final humiliation, that of public execution in the arena. And so some of those POWs would be made to fight to the death as gladiators against one another. Others would be torn apart by wild animals, kept hungry for just such a public ceremony. I want you to realize the irony, friends. The Corinthians were jockeying for position, saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. But the apostles were not celebrities to envy. They were servants who were often slighted for their service for Jesus. And that brings us to letter A today. Will we risk ridicule for the sake of Christ? As a church in 2019, will we risk ridicule for the sake of Christ? Verses 9 and 10 don't give us a lot of wiggle room. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we become a spectacle for the world, uh, to angels, to men, we are fools for Christ's sake. These traveling preachers were, were foreigners everywhere they went. They went into these new communities. They had very few rights where they went. Only Paul was a Roman citizen. None of the others had that. And they had really no prestige. They didn't walk in as superstars and heroes. They were ridiculed routinely for their rejection of local deities. They were derided for their adoption of practices that were utterly offensive to local prevailing cultural sensibilities. They they preached a Jewish Messiah to a Gentile audience. It doesn't go over very well. Uh, They preached of a God who became a man And yet, you need to remember that everywhere they went in the Greco-Roman world, uh, there was this this, uh, platonic belief that that matter is evil and spirit is good, so there's no way that a good God would ever become a wretched man. That's just as wrong as wrong could get in their philosophy. And then to learn that this Jewish Jesus was a condemned criminal crucified by the state. What kind of folly is this? Now remember, the Bible says the Jews sought power, but in the cross of 
Christ, we see God in, in weakness. The Gentiles sought wisdom, but the cross of Christ was the opposite of everything they had understood. And so the apostles daily endured robust ridicule. Listen again to verses 9 and 10. For I think that God has exhibited us, us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men, we are fools for Christ's sake. But you Corinthians are wise in Christ. You're held in honor, supposedly. And we're in disrepute. Raises the question, have you considered the example of the apostles in your life and witness? We're so often silent about Jesus, fearing that our reputation would be sullied or we might get bullied, right? What keeps us silent about Jesus in 2019 in North Jersey? We fear that our reputation would be sullied or we might get bullied. Let me tell you, this is not new to Christians. This is just true for Christians. This is not new for Christians. This is just true for Christians. Philippians 1.29, you might want to write that next to your Bible in this passage. Philippians 1.29 declares, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. See, this is not new to Christians. This is just true for Christians. If we're going to be ambassadors for Jesus... We're going to have to risk receiving ridicule for the sake of Jesus. Romans 10.14 is as haunting as a call as it is a daunting call. Romans 10.14 says, How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? That's how it's going to work. That's how you got saved. Someone was brave. There's a famous Christian in England, his name is John Stott, and he once asked, are we willing to be ridiculed for our message? How many of us are tempted to compromise the gospel because it's unpopular and despised? There is a great danger today in seeking to make it respectable. It's reasonable, yes. Respectable, no. Aren't we fools for Christ? Are you willing to put yourself out there so someone else can learn about Jesus from us? Brings us to point B. Will we risk being vulnerable for the sake of Christ? Will we risk being vulnerable for the sake of Christ? Listen to the end of verse 10. Do the apostles sound triumphant and resplendent or do they sound humble and utterly God-dependent? Paul says we are weak, but you are strong. You see, our fallen world loves the strong. I bet you could sell a lot of antiperspirant telling people never let them see you. Never let them see you sweat. And yet the example of the apostles in contrast to the carnal Christians at Corinth was this. The apostles were weak, but the Corinthians went around telling everybody they were strong. You see, we have this tendency to sort of want to airbrush our, our existences. Uh, believing that to be attractive as a Christian, we have to be devoid of all imperfection. And it leads to a plastic witness that lacks any realness. A feigned piety that others perceive as hypocrisy. 
Listen instead to how actual apostles shared their genuine struggles in 2 Corinthians 12.9. God's grace is sufficient for me. For God's power is made perfect in my weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Some of the best opportunities to witness in your life are through and in your pain and brokenness. Right? Some of the best times I've had to share about Jesus have been when it's back to the wall and if there was no Jesus, I wouldn't be there anymore. In our Instagram world, though, we're, we're nudged to project beauty, strength, and the trappings of success. Oh, we, we conveniently delete most of our pictures. Like, you've gone anywhere halfway interesting, and there's somebody, right, <laughs> duck-facing and the whole thing, and, and, and they take like a thousand pictures, because they're free now. Like, it used to cost money, and you're like, well, that's too bad, you're blinking in that one, Sorry. <laughs> But they take like a thousand pictures to find just the right one. And then once we find just the right one, we add a filter. So we frame the illusion just right. In today's world, we quickly learn to replace being vulnerable with being victorious. Even if it's an illusion. Even if we risk being inauthentic and ineffective in our witness. You see, in our broken world, if you look around, get a little bit into someone else's world, you're going to see it's a hurting place. People need the Savior. They don't need our manicured examples as supposed super people who have it all together, who have no needs. Therefore, we need no Savior. Are we willing to risk being vulnerable so others may learn that our God is able? That when we've reached the end of us, friends, that's where you get to Jesus in us. And that leads to, to letter C today. Uh, will we risk our reputations for the sake of Christ? Will we risk our reputations for the sake of Christ? Uh, the Corinthians, you are held in honor of the apostles, but we are held in in disrepute. Did you know that you can shine for Jesus in a, in a wicked and depraved generation like a bright shining star, but those who love darkness will hate your witness in all this? doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It might mean you're doing everything right. The Lord lived this in 1 Peter 2.23. The Bible says when Jesus was reviled, He did not revile in turn. And when Jesus suffered, He did not threaten that you may, uh, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so God's word then turns and urges us in 1 Peter 3.9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. You know what that means? It means there's going to be some reviling that we must be enduring. And we ought not find that beguiling and bewildering. We ought to understand it's the price of admission for the Christian 
we're going to be an effective witness for Jesus. Now, risking our reputation is one thing, but there's more things. Congratulations. <laughs> there's letter D. Letter D strikes a little more violently to some of us, depending on what our core values are. For many of us, oh, one of our core values in life is I just want to know that I've got a roof over my head and a 401k that's got enough money. And, you know, comfort and security is a big problem for me, a big idol for me. It's a big challenge. God and I get in a tussle over this. Okay, point D is for you, friend. Will you risk your comfort and security for the advance of Christ's kingdom? Will you risk your comfort and security for the advance of Christ's kingdom? What was the situation that made the apostles a public spectacle in verse 11? Well, verse 11 says this was the reason. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. Now, I know a guy, maybe you know this guy. It's a pretty important guy. He said this. Do you know the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests? But the Son of Man, Jesus, has no place to lay his head. You see, one of the first things Satan is going to whisper, when we start sharing Jesus, he's going to say, hey, you better shut up. This is going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. And sometimes it will. Not all the time. He whispers it all the time. It only happens sometimes. Sometimes we must risk comfort and security so the gospel is shared clearly, boldly, and thoroughly, or it won't get shared. The early church understood this. There was a man named Eusebius, and, and he was an early church historian, and he wrote in volume 8 of his History of the Church, he writes of the machinations of a wicked emperor named Diocletian, who was particularly unhappy with the church. And Eusebius writes, quote, this was the 19th year of the reign of Diocletian. They've been under this guy for almost 20 years. When the feasts of the Savior's Passion were near at hand, so they're, they're getting near sort of the high water mark of the Christian's calendar, and, and yet royal edicts were coming, were published everywhere, commanding that the churches should be razed to the ground, destroy their churches. The scriptures should be destroyed by fire. They're welcome to Easter this year. Our churches are going to be burned, and so are our scriptures. And those who held positions of honor degraded. So if you were in society and you identified as a Christian, you were no longer going to have that position. And the household servants, because many in the, in the early church were slaves, if they persisted in their Christian profession, they would be denied their liberty, meaning you don't give them off time to go to listen to those Christian preachers. They can just work all day, seven days a week, instead of six. Now, after the first degree decree against us, Eusebius writes, he issued another decrees not long after. The emperor commanded that all the rulers of the churches in every place should first be put in prison and afterwards compelled by every device to offer sacrifice. So we've burned your buildings, we've burned your churches, we've deprived your liberty, we've taken away your prestige, now we're going to jail and compel your pastors. That was Easter that year. But what was the result of all this personal temporal degradation. Well, in one generation, there was significant gospel proclamation, wasn't there? In the book of Acts, we talked this morning, the Bible talks about uh, a great number of people came to faith, and a great number of the, uh, the priests came to faith. We then learned that there was a terrible persecution that sent people away, and what was the result of that? The result of that was that people went to Samaria, and people that never heard the gospel, a number of Samarians came to faith. And, and then uh, you have Stephen, and Stephen is the most uh, powerful pillar uh, evangelizing in Samaria, and God sends him away. And, and ultimately, what happens to Stephen, though? The first martyr in the history of the church. They kill him for it because he had a fearless witness for Jesus. Incredible ministry. Um, 
Acts 11.21 tells us, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. That's a long way. Speaking the word to no one except the Jews, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke with the Hellenists also and preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. God did something amazing, but boy, it was uncomfortable for those being used. All this gospel advance came at a personal price to the apostles. Verse 11. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, and are poorly dressed, and buffeted, and are homeless. And that brings us to point E. Are we willing to reject ease to advance Christ and his kingdom? Are we willing to reject ease that we could otherwise have because we're going to advance the kingdom of God? I want you to listen to verse 12. Three words. And we labor. And We labor. Friends, advancing the cause of Christ is work. God's Word calls it labor. The Corinthians, well, they wanted to be noticed, but the apostles just got busy doing the labor. Solomon reminds us in uh, Proverbs 14, 23, that all hard work brings a profit, but mere talk only poverty. And so the question for the Christian is, are we mere talkers about ministry, or are we hard workers doing ministry? Whatever that looks like in your particular gifting and calling. Are you a talker or a doer when it comes to serving Jesus? Um, Jesus tells us in Luke 9, 62, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom of God. That is, if God has put you in a task, you just do that task, keep your head down and do that task, the glory of God to the king gives you another task. Don't look longingly back at what you are missing. Look instead at at the straight line you need to be making so that the crop is efficient. There ought to be a single mindedness in us as Christ's ambassadors. We ought not get consumed by by something lesser. Uh, Jesus has commanded us to make disciples, uh, to be His witnesses, uh, to preach the Gospel to all creation. So it begs the question, how are we doing in this? Because I find it's very easy for me to get distracted by something else. Not necessarily something awful or evil, but just something that goes, oh, look, the shiny thing. And then like... um, Right? Is that and just me? I'm just bad. Pray for me. You guys are great. We're preaching for Sean today. Okay. Uh, we live in a country where no one is beheading evangelists. Praise God and may that last because, you know, I'm, I'd like to lose weight but not starting at the head. In a culture where we have freedom of speech, there are a million different diversions vying for our attention. Are we willing to reject ease? and doing what we please so others can be made brothers. I'm going to tell you it's always easier to be introverted instead of being outgoing. I'm at heart an introvert, uh, but if folks are going to be converted, we need to get over our personal proclivities and commit to our Lord's priorities. Amen? When it, when it comes to the cause of Christ, can verse 11 be said of you as it was said of the apostles, and we labor. We labor. The back half of verse 11 is going to go against the grain of the wider culture. It's going to be the nails on the chalkboard. It's going to be, ah, 
you know, that thing. <laughs> and we labor. Now, here's this statement. It means very little to us, meant a lot to them. Working with our own hands. That brings us to letter F today. Will we reject current cultural norms for the advance of Christ's kingdom? Will we reject current cultural norms for the advance of Christ's kingdom? The apostles labored working with their own hands. Now, that was entirely countercultural to the dignified, refined, status-climbing Corinthian, everything in the Greco-Roman world. The Greco-Roman world said very clearly, all manual labor was the job of a slave. And nobody with any dignity did anything that ever made a little sweat show up on your toga. We have people to do that. But you know what? God gave dignity to work. When you read the Bible, Adam, when he lived in perfection before sin entered in, before you get to Genesis 3, you have Genesis 1 and 2, and in a state utterly untainted by sin, the Bible says Adam was commanded by God to work the garden, and he did. He had a mandate from heaven to subdue it that it might be mastered in such a way that it would yield maximum goodness for God's glory and one another's good. And so clearly was this seen in Scripture that one of the core values of Jewish culture was that every male should learn a skill, even a rabbi. You should have the ability to have a, a job working with your hands. And so there was a rabbi in your New Testament. His name was Paul. And what was his other job? He was a tent maker. He worked with his hands, making tents to pay rents so he could take the gospel to places unencumbered by economics and no one got confused if he was out to baptize their wallets or their souls. That was his unique call. Now, as we consider that deflation is the way to elevation for the Christian, we must consider the example of the apostles. And consider that here are the carnal Corinthians, and, and they very clearly they wanted to live like kings. And yet here are the apostles, and they were busy toiling like slaves. So either we're going to follow the Scripture or the culture. It's either God's Word or man's opinion. There is a fork in the road at this verse. There are views today that our culture ballyhoos is true. You have to believe this. You have to celebrate this. You have to say amen to this. Um, uh, there are things that they say are taboo. Oh, you can't say that. You can't think that. You can't. And yet God says some of those things they say are taboo, he says are true. Others are rejected. We're called to embrace it. So what do you do with it? Like it or not, there are, there are planks of biblical truth that the culture wants to saw off, saying, well, that's on the wrong side of history. But friend, one day you're going to be in eternity, and I don't think you want to be in the wrong side of eternity. Jesus puts it this way. It's another one of those verses we never embroider and put on our walls. Jesus says in Luke 6.26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For that's how their fathers treated the false prophets. Sometimes standing up for Jesus doesn't mean everybody is going to applaud us. Particularly if they're against Jesus. Sometimes standing with Jesus means that we're going to have to reject present cultural norms so we can project eternal biblical realities because the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Uh, Satan will try to get us to fudge in this, to get us to, to play both sides against the middle, but James says that's not a good position. James 1.8 sets us straight. He says the double-minded man is 
unstable in all of us. Well, you can't stand firm if you're unstable. So Jesus asks, how long will we waver between two masters? Because if you do, you're going to end up loving one and really resenting, hating the other. We must be very careful because the culture is trying to paint us in a corner. Right? Do you feel it? I feel it. My question is, when the paint is dry, are you still standing in Jesus' corner? Friends, this is a hard calling. This is a high calling. And frankly, it's a calling that I am incapable of consistently fulfilling. How about you? I fail at this a lot. But Paul knows this, and God knows this. Paul writes, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And that brings us to point G, and that's good news. <laughs> Will we reject what comes naturally, that we might respond supernaturally for the advance of Christ's kingdom? Will we reject what comes naturally? This is how I would naturally respond to this situation, being treated this way. This is how I would normally react as a sinner. Or will I react as Christ in me and project the Savior? Here's the verse. When reviled, we bless. That's how it works in New Jersey. That's my common experience. <laughs> when persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. The entreating, I think, is talking to God. They're talking about us. We're talking to... Not telling them off telling him about it, the just judge of all the earth, do right or give me grace to put up with this if this is what you want because you were reviled and yet you didn't open your... Paul's words here are really Christianity 101. Jesus told us this in Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Maybe that's a typo or something. I don't like that one. So if we leave Matthew 5 and we go to, I don't know, Luke 6, we get to this. Jesus commands us in Luke 6, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Okay, there's a problem in the Gospels. Let's leave the Gospels. Let's leave the Gospels, and we'll go to the Epistles. Let's go to the very first Epistle right after the Gospels. You get to Romans. You start reading through Romans quite happily, and then you get to Romans 12, 14, where the Holy Spirit moves the pen of Paul to write, bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. These injunctions are uncomfortable but they're unavoidable. And we each know intuitively that they do not flow from us naturally. This kind of reaction to these kinds of situations and provocations, well, I'm only going to react this way supernaturally. How about you? Friends, this is why we must lean on the Holy Spirit. This is why Christianity isn't a religion where we try harder. It's a religion where we lean on God's grace more. Help me to do what I couldn't do because you're doing it, not me. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so by keeping in step with the Spirit, by not grieving the Spirit, by yielding to the Spirit, that's going to be when I am able, when you are able, when this church is able, when reviled, that we can bless. When persecuted, we endure. And when slandered, we entreat. That leads us to one final injunction, letter H on our outlines today. Will we reject the world's accolades and endure its tirades 
for the advance of Christ's kingdom? Will we reject the world's accolades and reject its tirades for the advance of Christ's kingdom? Here's a great verse. (laughs) We have become and are still like the scum of all the world. The refuse of all things. It's another one, lots of tattoos in Hebrew. See them all the time at the sort of hipster Christian bar, right? Never. Haven't gotten to that one yet. Maybe you're not hanging out in hipster Christian bars. I I don't know. Anyway, uh, we have become and still are like the scum of the world, like the refuse of all things. These words are are jarring in the original Greek text. Uh, The scum of the world. The refuse of all things are banging words, clanging words, get your attention words. They're two words used nowhere else in all the Bible. These words are the word uh, perikarthama and uh, peripsema in the Greek. Now one writer describes perikarthama as the, as the hardened refuse scrubbed vigorously from the chamber pots. Those were the overnight toilets of the first century, the bedpans, the hardened refuse of the bedpans. And peripsima is no better. Uh, it, it's the crud that was, that was scraped off the waste baths and the cesspools in the city when it became absolutely too disgusting for even this first century person to endure any longer. And these words are not polite. These words are not pretty. These words are not polished. Metaphorically, they meant that they were the dregs of society. They were seen as the least and the last and the unlovely. And Saul says this is how God's apostles were often perceived and received by a lost world that sometimes is hostile to the gospel because they haven't had the light yet hit their heart. Quite a rebuke, isn't it? Quite a rebuke to the carnal Corinthians who in their pride, they always wanted to be first. The carnal Christians who always wanted uh, to be seen as so pretty, so they were so petty to one another, tearing each other apart so they could get a little higher on the ladder. What what a jarring rejoinder and biblical reminder to a church that that jockeyed for position by climbing over another brother. Because I want to be seen as bigger and better and more important. And over here are the apostles, humble and content for society to see them as the very last rung as long as God's will is done. Friends, serious servant leadership is seldom glamorous. we say that statement again in 2019? Serious servant leadership is seldom glamorous. One writer warns, here it is, a good quote, quote, the church that learns more from Madison Avenue than from the Via Dolorosa has lost its footing and will ultimately lose its crown. When the desire for societal prominence and acceptance steals a church's focus on self-giving and the pursuit of Christ-likeness, that church will ultimately lose its power and become self-indulgent. End quote. Are we living our lives to give glory to Jesus, or are we living our lives to give popularity contests that others would glory in us? Are we willing to reject the world's accolades? Are we willing to endure its tirades, because it's a sort of double-edged sword? for the advance of Christ and His kingdom. What I'm asking you over two Sundays is this. Christian, have you considered that deflation is the way to elevation? Deflation is the way to elevation in the kingdom of God. For blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. You didn't do it on Jesus' account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Jesus goes on to say, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under the feet. And then he says about light, he says, he says you are the light of the world, in a world of darkness, the church is to be the light of the world. You and I, if we know Jesus, we're these lighthouses in a world of outhouses. We're to be a city set on a hill. Can't be hidden. We can't run away from this. Nor do the people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand so it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Let's pray. To those ends, let's pray today. Lord, we need you. We need your grace to work a work in us that we cannot do through our own volition or scrupulous attention. For you tell us that what comes out of a cup is what is already inside of it. When we're jostled, may the grace of Jesus flow out of us and onto those who have purposely or, or accidentally tripped us up. May we, by your grace and for your glory, risk ridicule for the sake of Christ that your light may be seen in us and radiating out of us. May we not cover your light with the bushel of our own pride, worried about how we'll be received in some sinner's eyes. Holy Spirit, like the early church, we ask for a holy boldness in our witness for Jesus and a willingness to risk our reputations that your gospel would go forth from our situations. Heavenly Father, as a tower of refuge and strength, may we be willing to risk our temporal security and momentary comfort for the fame of your name. Please give us the courage to reject current cultural norms and yet to hold fast to eternal biblical realities, doing so just as you did. Because when you did it, you did it full of grace, never compromising in the truth. May we seek first your kingdom and your righteousness this week, this month, this year, consciously and consistently rejecting the world's accolades and if need be, enduring its tirades so we can advance your kingdom. May we be humble enough to be vulnerable enough when it's appropriate enough to show others that, you know what, we don't have it all together, but you hold us together. Where our sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where grace is found is where you are. Where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. And so, Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you. Every hour, we need you. Our one defense, our righteousness. Oh, God, how we need you. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray today. Amen.